Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombro in Hackney and organised by Architects Fourth Space with the assistance of Rob Fain and Bobby Jewell. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live and like the talks themselves with no frills and little or no editing to bring you the arguments of the evening direct and unfiltered. Uh, good evening. Um, I'm Jan Carlos Koharik, uh, senior editor of the Reba Journal, uh, past flatmate of Steve, which is why he's kind of hauled me in here to uh, talk at this Negroni talk. Um, not what I usually do. I'm a journalist, so generally I'm listening to other people and writing about what they're talking about as opposed to talking myself. But uh, uh, I'll go with uh, trying to. Uh, do this one as quickly as possible so I can do my own drop mic moment and get myself a drink. Um, thank you very much for all coming today. Uh, I'm here to just uh, to chair the talk and introduce uh, uh, the expert speakers who we've got to talk on the issue of not really so much climate change but how one actually kind of uh, activates oneself within the profession to do something about it. Um, it's been a long, hot summer. Uh, everyone's kind of enjoying a drink now, but uh, people are obviously getting very angry and passionate about climate change. We've seen that in the last couple of months with Extinction Rebellion um, marooning their boat in the middle of Oxford Circus, bringing most of central London to a standstill, and possible activism around, um, unexplained activism, whether that's drone activity around our, our airports earlier than that. So there's obviously, a keen interest from the public, from the wider public, as to how one begins to express uh, their anger about how little is actually being done in terms of climate change and how active we need to be in order to kind of push those agendas forward politically. Um, that passion doesn't seem to be quite uh, reflected within the profession of architecture, maybe because we're all Renaissance men and, and women and need to be rational and reasoned. Um, I certainly think that when you get people on TV, I mean, you know, George Clark George, um, and Kevin McLeod's talking about, you know, kind of getting on their high horse, I tend to kind of like turn over to EastEnders. I don't know why. Something about passion, really, from architects just strikes me as slightly weird. That said, I'm very prepared to take on board the passion of someone like Oliver Eliasson as an artist who's, talk, who's, you know, basically spending thousands of carbon miles transporting icebergs over from the Arctic shelf over to London so they can kind of... Um, artistically melt in front of our eyes. But I think it does kind of raise the idea about what the alternative is if we can't actually be passionate. Uh, ben Derbyshire, the uh, president of the RIBA, has been trying to do his bit in the last couple of years. Uh, just before he stands down, he announced the REBA uh, Environment and Climate Emergency. There was a declaration on that. Quite where that's going to go from the RIBA, RIBA as, a pro, as a profession, we don't yet know. But it does talk about things such as five-year action plans, uh, benchmark change, 
post-occupancy evaluation and building performance metrics. So I'm imagining there's going to be an awful lot of quick activity happening very quickly in that realm with words with terms like that. Uh, as far as architects declare goes, uh, that's all very well and good from Sterling Prize winners, but unfortunately most of them are still very actively engaged in building airports for, uh, in foreign countries. So I think there's still a lot, a uh, long way for us to go as architects. But I do think it leads to the question, how do we as a profession actually actuate ourselves? Do we lobby? Do we quietly design our own, you know, kind of go our own course designing our way out of this problem as individuals or as practices uh, and lead by example? Or do we get more involved in direct action? Uh, I think it's interesting because we all have paymasters as architects and uh, there's an essay at the end of John Hayden, which I always find myself quoting on loads of occasions for different reasons. He says so much in this uh, epilogue he did to Richard Myers, Volume 1, but in one of them he just said, name me an architect. In this one he said, name me an architect whose head has rolled. What he was saying is ultimately architects are playing to power. So how much can we actually get involved in the process of kind of uh, rebelling against it? Uh, to help with that, uh, with answering that question, we've got four uh, experts here in the profession. Uh, Julia Barfield, uh, from Marks Barfield Architects, probably best known for the London Eye and the I360 in Brighton. Uh, they're an award-winning practice with a portfolio of work across lots of sectors, culture and education, bridges, transport, sports and leisure. They recently did a Cambridge, the Cambridge Mosque, which is absolutely beautiful. Uh, she's represented, uh, she's on several panels at the RIBA. She examines at the University of Bath and lectures on sustainability and climate emergency. And most recently, last week, was on Channel 4 News, basically representing um, what, Extinct what Extinction Rebellion were up to. Uh, speaking of which, we also have Tom Bennett. Where are you? Tom? Hello, Tom. Uh, he's an architect at Studio Bark based in East London and in April was one of over a thousand people arrested for taking part in the non-violent civil disobedience with Extinction Rebellion, whose uh, Hackney HQ is literally a few doors down, he tells me. So if you want to join on your way home, I think it's on the left-hand side there, past the flower shop. Uh, this international action spanned two weeks with thousands of people taking to the streets. Uh, so he's going to be giving us his take on how active people have to get. Uh, we also have Maria Smith from Interrobang. She's an architect, engineer, writer and curator, uh, director of award-winning transdisciplinary architecture and engineering practice in Interrobang and at Web Yates Engineers. She's co-chief curator of Enough, the 2019 Oslo Architecture Triennale, where she's specialising on, or their, their theme is degrowth, or the architecture of degrowth, so how we reduce our need for resources effectively. And she's just recently been made an RIBA council member, so hopefully she'll be able to be a bit more proactive in that regard within the institute. Uh, and last but not least, we have Paul Finch, who's program director at the World Architecture Festival and editorial director of the Architecture Review and Architects Journal. He started as a journalist. Uh, he went on to uh, be a founder commissioner at CABE, the Commission for Architecture and the Built Environment, showing its design review and regional panels and chaired the London Olympics Design Panel. Uh, he became chair in 2010, overseeing its merger with the Design Council, where he became deputy chair in 2011. 
he holds doctorates from the University of Westminster, fellowships from UCL, and the Royal Institute of British Architects, awarded an OBE for services to architecture in 2002. Uh, to start this off, Julia, I mean, you were talking most recently representing the uh, interest of Extinction Rebellion. Uh, what do you think, or how far do you think architects can actually take their own activism within the profession? Well, I mean, I came to the conclusion in sort of October last year, having seen the IPCC report, um, which basically, I'm sure everybody here knows, I'm assuming everyone understands what deep shit we're in, in terms of climate, um, climate situation, that we've got 12 years to um, avoid climate catastrophe. So that, that really woke me up. I mean, I, you know, we at Mark's Bath have been trying to do sustainable buildings for, you know, 30 years, but that, you know, and we've been talking about this for 30 years, probably 40 years, but it's not happened, you know, we haven't done enough. And so we need to rethink what we do. And I think, you know, for me, I feel I need to act professionally, politically and personally. You know, it's got to be on every front. You know, we can't, uh, we can't just, you know, kind of do it professionally and then go home and, you know, you know we, we, we operate in a political world and we need to um, actually, you know, make action in, in, in all of those spheres. We all have choices to make. Um, and, uh, well, am I supposed to do my job? <laughs> you know, I mean, just give yeah, yeah, us a bit well, more that, of an that, idea about how you think, how you as a practice, for instance, can actually make moves forwards in terms well, of... Well, we've, you know, I'm part of the um, Architects Declare, so, um, you know, I've joined together. I mean, it was actually started by Steve Tompkins and um, Michael Paulin, and Maria and I are on the steering group. Um, but it's very much a kind of grassroots organisation. It's not meant to be something that's telling people what to do. I mean, I was with Maria. We went to a talk by Bill uh, McKippen and recently, and somebody asked him, you know, in the light of the climate emergency, what what should I do as an individual? And basically he said, don't be an individual. Um, you know, the most effective thing you can do is be part of a movement. And I suppose that's what Articlets Declare is, really. It's just, it's a movement of kind of like-minded people who've kind of woken up to the fact that, you know, we can't just have committees and, and anymore. You know, we've just got to take action of, you know, the question is, what should that action be? And, um, and I think we're all kind of at the beginning of trying to work out what that is. And, um, and I think there's lots of different groups that have a part to play. I think Extinction Rebellion have a part to play. Obviously, the school trikes have been incredibly uh, effective in, in raising uh, awareness. But, you know, you said I was on Channel 4 the other day. I mean, you know, the, um, you know, the way that that, um, was, which was basically a, a, a climate, um, uh, an, an event that is part of climate change, they... Um, you know, a lot of people were saying, oh, it's very nice, we're stunning ourselves on the beaches of Scotland, you know, and really not getting it. And, and that's quite frightening, um, because the whole, you know, the, the whole prospect of, of climate change is very frightening. And, um, you know, the fact that it's not being properly reported in the press, and, you know, the, the awareness is not there, is, um, is very worrying. Um, and, um, Do you think as a practice that you could... Uh, I mean, is it a case of a practi on a practice scale then that you can say that you're you're supporting Extinction Rebellion, for instance? Do you, as an individual, just say that you are, or do you think, as a practice, you can actually say that we're no, supporting? No, no, no. I'm agenda? not saying. No, I'm not saying. I mean, I've, I I wouldn't say that I'm a card-carrying member of Extinction mm. Rebellion. 
I think they have a part to play along with you know, lots of other people within the climate movement. Um, and I think they've done a lot to raise awareness. And you know, they're not a fly-by-night organization. I mean, who knows how long they're going to last, but they have, there was three years of um, research that they did into the effectiveness of civil disobedience movements um, throughout the ages. And, um, you know, so what, and they're incredibly well organized. I mean, I just went to one of their uh, open evenings. And you know, the thing that struck me about them was how educated, how well educated they are. <laughs> you know, everybody's got, you know, doing a master's or a PhD or, you know, it's not a bunch of, you know, old hippies. It's actually a very, very um, targeted, well organized um, group that have been very effective. I mean, along with the school strikes, along with, you know, um, David Attenborough with his The Facts About Climate Change, you know, I think, but, you know, and I think there's something, you know, people have woken up, but not quite enough yet, and we need to find out what, um, what role we have to play. I think we need to look at, um, you know, donut economics, for example. We need to look at, you know, um, the fact that we need to rethink um, the, the way we measure success, you know, in terms of GDP. You know, it's, we can't go on, you know, with endless growth. We have to, you know, on a finite world. And so, you know, that's another context. We need to see it in the context of economics, of politics, and, um, and I haven't read any of my speech, but there you go. <laughs> how, how much do you think uh, your firm should maybe should wear their heart on their sleeves, for instance? I mean, I, I, I heard once that, I don't know whether it's true, but actually when you were asked to design the Sellafield Visitor Centre, you actually went to Greenpeace to ask them whether it was actually ethical for you to do so. I don't know who told me this, so it could be complete oh, rubbish. Right. Okay, that was a long time ago. <laughs> but the, you actually yeah. went to them, and apparently Greenpeace said, well, if you don't design it, someone else will, so better than somebody who represents yeah. our interests yeah. than not. I don't, I don't remember that, but anyway, oh, right. yes. Maybe it's so, complete rubbish. So Made it we up. We were concerned even then about you know, the eth ethical arguments, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Tom, I was just, uh, sorry, I was just going to, sorry, just to, uh, yeah, if you could just speak into the mic, put your mouth quite clear to the microphone, it's grey, it gets really loud. Um, if you could just give us an idea about what the experience was for you to actually, A, uh, be involved in the Extinction Rebellion um, standoff in the middle of Oxford Circus, or actually you were on Waterloo Bridge when you got arrested. But uh, give us an idea of why you wanted to get involved, um, how you feel as an architect being involved with it, and whether you feel that it's necessary for practices to maybe stand up as organizations rather than individuals within that organization. Sure. Um, can you hear me, everyone? Um, I'd be happy to answer those questions, but I have prepared a few mar uh, remarks. So no, would you please mind go if ahead. I, no, yeah, would you mind ahead. if I just deliver that? And yeah, yeah, go for it. Sorry. It. All right. So, um, yeah, the first thing to say is that I'm speaking for myself tonight. So I don't represent my practice or Extinction Rebellion. Um, but I think, you know, it's clear that we're here because of Extinction Rebellion. So I'm going to talk about that and what I think it means for the world of architecture. So many of you will be familiar with XR's three aims. So tell the truth, act now, beyond politics. So I should be clear, this won't be a kind of in-depth look at what exactly Extinction Rebellion are calling for. You can check their website for that. Um, but I do think it's useful to ground this discussion in a recognition 
of the situation that we face. And that's the basis for XR's call to tell the truth. We all know the science. It's not about polar bears anymore. By 2030, we'll see catastrophic levels of warming. So without action, drastic action, to reduce emissions in the next 11 years, it will be too late. And that time window could yet shrink. Scientists refer to the period we're living in as the sixth mass extinction. And the signs are all there. We're seeing staggering declines, such as 98% loss of ground insects in parts of the tropics, or an 89% collapse in new corals on the Great Barrier Reef. If we look at this picture as a whole, this is not just a crisis. Increasingly, it seems we are entering a period of rapid ecological collapse. The hot summer of 2018 reduced agricultural yields in the UK by 20%. Without action, we're facing famine and social disintegration within a couple of decades. And so we face a choice. We can either address this proactively or we can leave it and reap the consequences. And that is the basis of XR's second aim, which is to act now. So I'm sure many of us had this experience of uni at university of being completely unable to start a design project, right? We'd turn up to our tutorials week after week and we'd have nothing but excuses. And our tutors would encourage us to, to just make a start, to actually do something. And that could be a model, a drawing, whatever it might be and from there to find our way into the project, to find our way forward. And I think that's kind of where we're at as a society. We're kind of trapped in this sort of state of paralysis. But here's the thing, our final crit is next week. And we spend the term procrastinating, getting drunk, and now it's time to set aside the excuses and to get cracking. So with that in mind, what can architects actually do? Ultimately, we need to change the rules of the game. We need to agitate for changes to the regulatory, legislative, and economic environment in which we practice. We need planning policy and regs that are, are fit for a, a zero-carbon society. And we also need to look at incentives and taxation, such as the very perverse way in which VAT rules discourage retrofit. Beyond that, we can consider our codes of conduct, um, yeah, and our values as a profession. So, you know, in addition to that, we need to do the big thing. And the big thing is to transform our economy. And I feel the Architectural Education Declares petition actually summarizes very nicely. This is what they had to say. The crisis has grown out of a socio-economic system which depends on the intensive extraction of the Earth's resources ultimately driving our planet's life support systems to their limits. It is now clear that ecological breakdown and global inequality are intimately linked. They're related symptoms of the same process. And that brings us to the final point, which is beyond politics. It is 28 years since global leaders first agreed to keep, um, to keep climate change to below two degrees. And in that time period, we've released more carbon into the atmosphere than in the whole of the rest of human history combined. It is clear we are not going to see the required action from politicians or the business elites of their own volition. 
In February, Parliament debated climate change for the first time in two years. 35 MPs bothered to attend. But we've come a long way. We've come a long way in just a few short months. We've seen that non-violent civil disobedience can be a powerful card that citizens can play in shifting public awareness and opinion, which in turn has an important role to play in shaping policy. Many of us in this room are architects, but we are all citizens and can all be agents of change by choosing to become involved in campaigns and social movements. So tell the truth. We need to get honest about how bad this is. Act now. We need to change the systemic context in which we practice, and we need to transform our economy, and we need to make a start on that. Beyond politics, we can play our part in the mass mobilization of civil society. If this succeeds, we can gain purchase over our political system in order to democratize and decarbonize our economy and our built environments. Climate breakdown is likely, but it is not yet inevitable, and it could always be worse if we fail to act. We have squandered our opportunity to solve this through gradual reform. We have one last chance. Let's not waste this emergency. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Uh, Julia, I absolutely failed to let you give you, and I'm so, so keen to actually get this microphone dropped that I, um, I actually didn't let you give your own speech. So I think we should let you do that, and then I'll... I'll, I'll uh okay, well, um, I did give bits of it, so... Um, I was going to say that the... Um, Prerequisite, prerequisite of any discussion on the role architects have is to just Julia, un oh, is to just understand the severity and urgency of the situation. But I think that was very articulately um, described um, by Tom. Um, but I think professionally, there's a lot we can do. The first thing is to acknowledge the problem. Um, obviously, as creative problem solvers. That's what we do. We define the problem before we can solve it. And, and the, uh, in a way, that's what the architects declare is. Um, and um, over 500 practices have now declared. And that's been um, expanded to include 100 um, UK civil building services and structural engineers, um, as well as UK students and institutions. Um, and Norway has joined. Uh, they joined pretty fast. And so has Australia. And now we're about to launch the uh, construction declares to include all players in the construction industry. So designers, landscape architects, engineers, project managers, surveyors, developers, estate managers, contractors, suppliers, um, and, and clients. And then it in, the intention is to go global. So coming back to Bill McKibben, you know, the idea is that you know, this is a movement. And um, we are... Um, you know, it's a global petition to unite all strands of the construction and built environment, but it's both a, pub a public declaration of our planet's environmental crises and a commitment to make positive action. And, you know, but it's essentially a grassroots, decentralized network um, where every signatory um, has committed to push ahead with their own clients, their co-professionals and supply chains. So it's not a top-down thing. It's something where everybody has to um, take action. I mean, some of the things that we could do is um, 
well, we fundamentally need to rethink our approach and move to a more regenerative design uh, process. Um, I mentioned uh, donut economics. Um, I'm I expect most of you are familiar with that um, and the circular economy. I mean, of course, we need to design low, en design low energy buildings um, in use and embodied. We need to decarbonize heating, but we should also go further and become energy positive, like the powerhouse by Corbo by Snohetta, or even create buildings that need no heating at all, like the 2022-28 by Baumschlager Erbeli. Um, and buildings need to be loose fit and, um, and uh, flexible and adaptable and meet changing needs and even changing uses. Um, and the, a good example of that is the Oasis building in Stockwell by Ben Marks and Matt Atkins, which is a Walter Siegel method building disassembled from the South Bank and reconfi reconfigured in Stockwell for a children's charity. I think it's probably one of the most sustainable buildings in London. And we need to design for long life. Um, but we also, and, and use durable materials um, with low embodied energy, but maybe we should also be um, designing for disassembly, uh, uh, with disassembly in mind, and build out of reused and recycled and compostable materials like the Nest Research Building by Werner Sobeck and Rota DC in Brussels. Um, Rota is an amazing organization that, that has got a database of recycling materials from large um, from large uh, buildings that have been demolished. And we should obviously use less waste, we need to share knowledge, um, and we need to crack the most difficult challenge of all, which is the decarbonisation and upgrading of our existing housing stock. And this is where it gets political, because I agree with what was said earlier, we need to get government commitment for higher building regulations, incentives for building fabric improvements, and um, we need to make energy more visible um, and even do boring things like post-occupancy <laughs> evaluation, which um, I think we d really, really don't do enough of. I mean, we have a building, uh, I won't say which one it is, but we went back three years after it had been um, occupied and found that the PV, which um, covers 25% of the building area, were just not being used properly. They weren't working properly. So, you know, that kind of thing we really need to do um, seriously. And, and, and while they're at it, the government should remove VAT on refurbishment. I agree with that. Um, I mean, last week they even added VAT to solar power and while tripling subsidies on fossil fuels. I mean, it's right. This government is, you know, they're, they're blocking onshore wind, they're forcing fracking, and, um, and they're forcing um, airport expansion, which clearly they really should not do. I mean, the CCC report estimates that achieving zero carbon by 2050 will cost 1 1.5 to 2% of GDP. And that just seems to me a tiny amount compared to, the, um, to, to, compared to what needs to happen um, in, in the next um, few years. Um, we need to embrace, embrace Kate Raworth's Donark economics. She's rethinking economics, questioning the idea of constant growth on a finite planet and reimagining progress. We need to reimagining what progress looks in the construction industry. In short, we need to turbocharge our, our response to this existential threat. And this is where it gets personal. I was on Lambeth Bridge on the 18th of November last year for, a, 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 for the XR's first mass event, the closing of the five bridges. And it was three days after the birth of my first grandchild, which is, focuses the mind like nothing else. She will be 32 in 2050. 
And it seemed to me that most rational thing to do in the light of government inaction and apathy generally. Um, we, need, we all need to see the world through the lens of climate and environmental crisis. And it needs to guide all our choices, including what we eat, how we travel, how we shop, and whether we stand up and speak out. You see, it's not about having less of what we want, but rather having more of what we need. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, interesting one about post-occupancy evaluation. Sounds very boring, but I think it was Alan Short was talking to me about, uh, Professor Alan Short talking about the reason why nobody wants any of those is because they're worried about the litigation of buildings that don't actually perform once they're actually in use. Uh, so whether that's actually going to really go forward, I think, is an interesting point. Um, Maria. All right. Hello. Um, I would like to talk about economics. Um, okay, let's just give you a quick pop quiz. At 3% economic growth a year, which is you know, far beyond what we're achieving right now, but probably desirable in many people's minds, 3%, yeah? How many years does it take to double the size of the economy? Anyone? 70, any, any other guesses? Seven? Well, I mean, you've ruined my punchline. It's 24. <laughs> um, the point is, we need economic growth every year. No, every quarter. Well, at least we can't go two quarters without economic growth because then we're in a recession. And that is shit, right? We hate recessions. So we have to keep growing. We just, we just have to. 3% uh, is like some kind of golden figure, but actually I think at the moment we're at about, well, we vary around one. Uh, it's not enough, everyone's panicking. They wanna do various things to kind of catalyze and incentivize and get the economy kind of growing faster and faster and faster because that's going to make us all richer because we're not all getting richer all of the time that's just shit right the uh the problem is uh we we can't afford it uh environmentally um according to our kind of traditional ways of of growing the economy it means that we need to keep using more resources from the earth we need to keep fucking with our water systems we need to keep polluting and all of that stuff so the powers that be came up with this brilliant idea green growth oh it sounds great doesn't it what we'll do is we'll keep growing the economy but we'll stop fucking over the earth while we do it so we'll have a kind of green economic growth. And it was a really, really, really good branding exercise. And we're still very much pursuing this. Everybody is still very much pursuing this idea of green growth. And at the center of green growth is the idea that we can decouple economic growth from environmental impact. So we can keep growing year on year on year on year on year on year, just cut each other's hair faster and faster and faster. But meanwhile, we don't take more stuff from the earth, we don't pollute more, we don't use more water and so on. We kind of, we use less and less and less of all of those things to such an extent that we're actually gonna bring ourselves within 
environmental limits within the carrying capacity of the earth, while at the same time still all getting really, really filthy rich. It sounds great. It sounds so great that everybody thinks we should be doing it. The really, really sad news is it doesn't fucking work. And I want to introduce you to this wonderful report that was published last week. It's got a picture of Nessie on the front that perhaps tells us something about what's inside. Now, um, this was released, I think, Thursday or Friday. Um, it is called Decoupling Debunked. Um, and it is presented by the uh, European Environmental Bureau. And I just want to put my pen down there, thank you. Um, and basically, they tell us seven reasons that make green growth problematic. And I just want to tell you what those seven reasons are, and then I'll shut up. Is that okay? Got two minutes. <laughs> it's fine. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's very long. Uh, right, hang on. La, 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 la. Please hold. Okay, so here are the, here are the seven reasons. Firstly, rising energy expenditures. Basically, because I've only got two minutes, I'm just going to give you my shit versions. <laughs> Basically, what this means is that any resource is used up, it gets harder to get hold of, more expensive in terms of energy. For example, we got the easiest coal first, the stuff that was nearest the surface, the stuff that was the most efficient, the loveliest coal nearest the surface. We got that first, and then we got the harder and harder and harder and harder, coal, oil, all natural resources. This is like a kind of mug's law, right? The, the further we get into it, the more difficult it gets. So it's not going to be very easy to get it more and more and more and more efficiently. Second, rebound effects. You might know this is Jevron's paradox. Basically, an easy example is that if you make cars more fuel efficient and therefore cheaper to run, you're probably going to drive more. So every time we see these efficiencies, even if we can achieve these efficiencies, despite the whole rising energy expenditures thing, the incentive isn't there to actually reduce those uses. Third problem, problem shifting. So, for example, we did manage to decouple economic growth from the increasing mounds of horse shit in the streets. We did really well at that. There is no longer horse shit everywhere in the streets. However, there are now these lovely petrol guzzling cars everywhere. So while we have decreased one environmental impact, we have massively increased another. And that tends to happen in lots and lots of different ways. Fourth problem, the underestimated impact of services. Um, so the, the, the example they gave about this is Netflix, okay? Increasing Netflix subscriptions does not decrease the amount of computers in the world. So yes, we can increase the economy by increasing the amount of services. And you can do that by a percentage. So the percentage of services can grow and grow and grow. However, it doesn't ultimately absolutely decrease the amount of sort of raw hardware. Software needs hardware. And the internet now uses 2% of our global energy budget, as an example. Fifth thing, the limited potential of recycling. I mean, we all try to recycle as much as we can, I'm sure. And I think we all know that it doesn't do everything we want it to. It's sort of... 
It requires energy in itself, which is annoying. It's very, very hard to recycle 100% of all the stuff that you use. But even if somehow, magically, you could recycle everything with renewable energy and you could recycle 100% of all the stuff that you used, just by its very nature of growth, even if there would still be a growing demand for more stuff. So you're always going to need more stuff than the stuff you had yesterday. So recycling the stuff of yesterday isn't going to be more stuff than you had. So you're still going to need more raw materials. Sixth reason, we're nearly there. Insufficient and inappropriate technological change. Basically, this idea that technology will save us is really, really, really seductive. And, you know, maybe some crazy, amazing thing will happen. But the chances of that happening, the chances of there being sufficient technology to overcome all of these things, sort of suddenly invented, is just so, 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 so low that uh, there's just, there's, it's unprecedented. So, sure, it's possible. But is that really where you want to put your uh, where you want to put your bet? And then the final thing is uh, cost shifting, which is basically that yes, we can decrease, for example, in the UK, the amount of uh, carbon emissions. But as long as we're still growing our economy and increasing our demand, all we're doing is moving that pollutant pollution to other places. So you're just Again, it's another cow dung one, really. But all you're doing is moving the problem, and we have to think globally. And every time somebody is reporting this stuff, they're like, yeah, but we're making all of this progress. It's like, if you look at actually the external, external factors and where that full impact is actually going, it doesn't exist. Anyway, all of that is beautifully set out in the Nessie report, and I very much encourage you all to read it, because the thing is, we, as architects, as citizens, and uh, thank you for saying that, I want to say it too, um, what we really need to do is just understand this shit, read up on it, and take part in the larger conversation. This is a systemic problem. This is not because some of us are bastards. I mean, some of us are bastards, but that's not why we're in this mess. It's because it is structural and systemic, and we are all horrible hypocrites, and we're all perpetuating it all of the time, and we have to change the overall system. That's all. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Maria. Um, yeah, de oh. Decoupling, oh, right. Yes, that sounded like a kind of weird form of green pyramid selling that you were describing there. Um, Paul, uh, going over to you, I'm expecting you to be uh, a typical provocateur, so um, off you go. When I thought I was going to kind of being set up as the spectre at the feast this evening, a lovely feast, the ombre. Uh, but I suddenly find myself as the only cheerful person in the room. We just had this torrent of gloom and doom and nothing can happen and technology is not going to change, it's not going to get any better. After what I evidence is there that technology would improve given the history of the last hundred years? Obviously, it's all going to come to a grinding halt. And you know what? If all the cars are run by electricity, that means people use more of them. No, they won't. You'll toll the roads. We already do it with the congestion charge. This is just a failure of imagination. One thing is a sceptical journalist that taught me, don't rely on the report that came out last week as the last word on anything. There'll be another one next month which says something slightly different. Let's be sceptical. Now, climate petitions and protests, the uh, title of this uh, debate, uh, the role architects can play in the climate change debate and what can be done in terms of leading by example, 
lobbying or more direct action. I'm dealing with these in reverse order. Uh, and excuse me for being uh, skeptical. I think that's my role this evening. Direct action. I'm skeptical about it because in Britain, by and large, we're not gilets jaunes. Uh, by and large, it's only where there are major constitutional issues uh, like uh, universal suffrage uh, that direct action uh, uh, is effective. And let's face it, it took between 1832 and 1928 for that to happen. Things don't happen radically overnight. In general, the UK public dislikes being told by unelected single-issue pressure groups what to think and whether they can move around in their own city. Lobbying, a necessary and useful feature of liberal democracies at best and a corrupting and baleful influence at worst. Now, in respect of climate change, one should acknowledge, and I freely do, the honourable motives of most of those campaigning for radical change, especially the young. But effective lobbying requires strategic clarity, what we want and why we want it, and tactical pragmatism, when we want it, and how are we actually going to get it? And of course, there needs to be clarity about who is leading the charge and why it's them and not somebody else. And as far as architects are concerned, most likely body, for better or worse, is the RIBA. And let's remember the best mantra for working designers that's ever been produced about what a responsible attitude to producing buildings and urban environments came from the RIBA post-1973 oil price prices, which, by the way, when we were all told, I don't believe the 12-year thing, we were all told that the earth would have run out of uh, resources, the oil would have all have run out, we'd all be uh, living in darkness by the year 2000. It's all, you know, the end of the world is nigh. Take it with a big bucket of salt. The mantra, long life, loose fit, low energy, the best mantra there's ever been, I'd say it's as relevant today as it ever has been. Let's remember what architects have little effect over because there is a horrible kind of professional inverted arrogance about solving the problems of the world. Architects used to say in the 70s and 80s, it's all our fault, we design all this high-rise housing, we haven't produced civilised environments, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea culpa. And all it was was architects saying, we're responsible for everything. In other words, we really are God. Architects are not responsible for housing at all. They're responsible for designing a certain proportion of the housing that gets built in Britain and a certain amount of the uh, admirable retrofit that goes on. Housing is created as our environmental policies by politicians and by the actions of society at large over long periods of time, not by professionals who, by definition, have a vested interest in claiming that if it's their fault, they can solve the problem, and if you give us enough fees, we will do exactly that. It's a ridiculous proposition. Architects cannot affect climate change. World population has doubled in an extraordinary short period. It's going to happen again in an even more extraordinary short period. And guess what? Architects will have nothing to do with provision of food or water, and very little to do with the infrastructure that will be necessary if we're going to survive on the planet. So let's take a little reality check about what it is that the design profession can do um, which, as far as I'm concerned, is not sitting down on bridges and claiming moral uh, superiority. It's fine to do that as a citizen, 
Doing it as an architect is completely irrelevant. What the profession can do collectively, firstly, it should run a really strong and consistent lobby. The RIBA's tried, but I don't think it's been effective since that long life, low fit, low fit, loose fit, low energy uh, proposition uh, from the RIBA president Alex Gordon back in the 70s. You know, it's kind of drifted. There's always been an RIBA energy group. It's had worthy people on it, but its strategic objectives, I think, have got diluted, they've evaporated, they've got lost in the wash somehow or other, which is why, in a sense, uh, the Extinction Rebellion thing has, has to happen, because that general condition of things getting lost in the wash provokes a, a reaction. So it has to do that, and the reason it has to do that is it can then work with like-minded organizations to try to influence policy. And, and we heard earlier a, a rather delightful kind of bourgeois liberal uh, plea for a Menshevik approach to improving regulations and changing policies and doing things in the old-fashioned way and numbing your ass sitting on the Building Regulations Advisory Committee, which actually where some of that tough stuff actually gets done and where it really starts to make a difference and you can't just put single glazing in anymore because the regulations have changed and of course the profession needs to exploit the influence of its most prominent members you know Marx Barfield the whole Sterling Prize gang you know a fantastic potential piece of leverage the leverage is what's important. It's not a gigantic profession, but it can have big leverage because of what it does uh, and who uh, it is. And of course, it can promote best practice, which I think is a worthy objective uh, through all awards programs, which people are skeptical about. You know what? The public admire stuff that's won awards. And if you tell them it's won awards because it's great environmentally, that kind of gets people excited about it. And the, I'll, I'll give you one example. No one gave a damn about refurbishment until very recently. And a few years ago, as a result of, of kind of climate initiative, UK Green Building Council, I made a personal commitment. They said, what are you going to do? We were on some course. What are you going to do to raise uh, the uh, profile somehow of environmental design? And I said, we're going to launch an award which promotes retrofit. And that's what we did on the AJ. And it started very small. It's now getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it, right from day one, you couldn't win stuff there with just pretty photographs. You had to have your energy analysis, and that's what we should be doing. Of course, schools of architecture should be equipping students to understand, right from the outset, the environmental implications of that first line they draw on uh, their, their kind of project. Although, let's not tie students down by saying, if you're not being responsible about 101 things, then you're no good. At some point, you've got to let the creativity run. Finally, what architects, and by this I mean really practices rather than just individuals, what can they do? Well, one is to commit to change, as many architects already have done. One is to promote awareness of energy carbon issues, and in particular to clients, and argue the case for carbon-friendly approaches via analysis in an enlightenment way, not because worthy, idealist young people are really upset about things, but because you can show how you can produce a responsible carbon outcome by doing it this way and using those materials rather than uh, doing it another way. 
pursue that best ever mantra, long life, lose fit, low energy, at a banal level, offset the carbon production of your own practice by planting trees and encourage your clients to do the same in respect of every building they make and in, in, encourage clients generally uh, to think about and with CSR you know this is not so difficult the City of London is taking this stuff seriously the biggest developers in Britain the biggest ones it's the small ones you have to worry about the big ones pay people to make them environmentally responsible you know why because it does nice things for their stock market valuation so without being overly cynical about this you know the architectural profession should exert what leverage it has it has a moral authority which derives from knowledge and inspiration and creativity and it should be pointing a path about how we solve things and not how we're utterly doomed to failure Thank you very much. I think that was more than five minutes, I have to say. Um, yeah, very interesting. I, I, I take your point, Paul, about uh, uh, reports. Yes, they, they come, every, come and go every month. I remember when I was working, uh, when I was a student, I worked at a market research place that had a thing on the wall that said, torture the data for long enough and it will eventually confess. So I think you can get... You can get what you want out of any data, yes. Post-occupancy evalu evaluations, you, you're right. Maybe there is a way that we can go forward with that where you actually prove to clients that uh, working in a more sustainable way creates better carbon footprint and therefore it's all working, you know, it's, it's all work, it working for the bottom line in the long run. That's good. Uh, I don't know how far the profession actually wants to do with that because it asks them to put their money where their mouth is really in terms of the performance of their own buildings. Maria, you were talking about awards and how you were thinking, actually once you were on the panel, that you wanted building performance actually to form part of the award process to actually make sure that, so that actually you want that completely formalised. You would want that going forward? Absolutely. Okay, good. So you just want to, you need it prioritised? It, ju it just needs to be prioritised. It's already there. It's already a consideration. I'm on the national awards panel. I've seen it in action. Okay. But it's it just needs to be yeah, lifted in the list of priorities amongst all the very many other things. Well, you've seen four different views there. Um, I think we'd better put this one out to the floor, really, because I think uh, we've got limited time, and I'm sure you all uh, there's a number of questions. It means I can get my I can actually give this mic away as well. Uh, does anybody want to start with a question? Thank you. Um, I think it's quite appropriate that we're, we're meeting here to talk about this today because it's Earth Overshoot Day. And uh, two hours ago, the Met Office also confirmed that last week we, uh, we did break the record temperature ever in the UK again. Um, but I think we've got a very good panel, uh, which includes three very good architects, um, a journalist who's, who's always provocative, uh, Two members of Extinction Rebellion, or people who've taken part. Um, two members of the steering group of Architects Declare. We've got one ROBA council member. There's a lot of knowledge in this room. And um, also in the audience, there's a lot of members of another group called uh, Architects Climate Action Network. And we've been meeting quite regularly to talk about this. And there are countless other groups out there. There's Letty, UK Green Building Council, Architecture Education Declares, um, architects for XR and more and I think um, my question really is directed towards 
Maria and Julia. Uh, and it's about Architects Declare and it's, it's about radicalism. Um, because uh, I understand that you're trying to build a consensus amongst the 500 or so practices that have um, signed up. Um, but this includes within the, within the ranks um, people like Grimshaw who are working on Heathrow Airport expansion, which, if we're really honest with ourselves, cannot go ahead. W it just can't. Otherwise, we're fucked. So, so then, if you've got this group and you're going to create a lobbying agenda from, from these kinds of businesses, can Architects Declare be radical enough? Okay, so Architects Declare is quite young, um, but it's a declaration, primarily. Um, it's about signing up to something and agreeing that this is what we all sign up to. It's not um, an institution that is there to uh, point fingers at our colleagues and, uh, yeah, like, besmirch everybody. I think that's not helpful. I think it's actually really important that vilifying each other is off the agenda. Uh, personally, I think that we can all do everything that we can do, and to try to sort of start making enemies is not a good idea. Um, however, um, we are absolutely trying to build consensus amongst those uh, 500 signatories so far. There is going to be um, a gathering <laughs> where we're going to work on that with everybody who signs to work out what are the next steps, what are the next things we can do. One of the really important things, as Julia mentioned, about construction declares is getting... So we've already got structural engineers declare, building services engineers declare, civil engineers declare. We're working on getting uh, surveyors declare, developers declare. If you have a project team where every single party in the room has declared, then that is a pretty clear mandate that we don't do a shit project that fucks over the environment. And that is very powerful. So I think we just, we need to, it's very much about building consensus and about acting professionally. This is the particular sort of thing, this is the agency that architects declare has and can do. That doesn't mean that there aren't loads and loads of other things that we can all be doing, like as individuals, we can be involved in Extinction Rebellion, we can be do this, we can try and get the ROBA, this enormous kind of Leviathan to slightly, sh you know, we can all try and do lots of different things, but I think the specific thing that architects declare really can do is to try and build that consensus that we are all trying to work towards taking much, much, much more incisive climate action together. Does that sort of answer your question? Do you want to say something? I don't have much more to add in except to, to say that we're sort of somewhere in between Extinction Rebellion and our, our IBA. Um, and we're, we're kind of, you know, the fact that it's going global and we didn't really have to try, you know, and the fact that you know, I think it's a moment in time when, you know, people have really woken up um, um, globally, you know, and obviously there's the school strikes and there's Extinction Rebellion, and, and, and this is trying to kind of just focus on what the construction industry can do. And I think the next thing we're going to do is, is talk to developers and clients and, um, and funders and, um, you know, and, and in that way just exert influence, uh, but in a professional way. Um, 
And as Maria said, that doesn't stop us going to do more radical things as well. But this is meant to be more of a professional voice that's maybe slightly lighter on its feet than the RIBA and the institutions, although the institutions are coming along as well. You know, I think that such is the state of, of sense of urgency that people have, because I believe in the IPCC report, even if you don't, Paul, that, you know, and, 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 if, and if you're wrong, you know, then, you know, I'd prefer to believe it and do and have the sense of urgency than just ignore it and think that it's gloom mongering because, you know, what if it's right? And it is mo the most important scientists in the world. You know, they have come together, you know, as part of the UN. So, you know, I, I, I think it's dangerous not to believe it, really. Yeah, I think it's difficult, actually, the idea with Heathrow, for instance, where, I don't know, even the fact that, you know, post-camera, you know, during Cameron's, when Cameron came in, it was part of the idea that they were going to kind of, you know, shelve the whole third runway. It's funny how these things kind of come back around. It's amazing. I mean, Boris is about to throw himself in front of a, a bulldozer, and now he's kind of actively going to be promoting a third runway. There's a sense of fait accompli. I, 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 I take your point there, that things come around again. They're never really put to bed. There's never really a gesture made about actually stopping or, or stopping the, the sense of growth. It's, it's, it always comes back around. So uh, I can take your frustration. Um, hi, my name's Yoni Strollitz. So... I want to really fly a flag for post-occupancy evaluation, which has been described this evening uh, variously as boring, boring, and boring. And as someone who spends about half of her professional life doing post-occupancy evaluations, I don't find it boring, and I think that people don't generally find me boring. So, um, you know, I think you should just switch focus. There are folk out there who kind of you know, really get a buzz doing it. I find it deeply engaging. And I would, there's always a continuous learning process. So two more points on post-occupancy evaluation. The first is that the only aspect of it isn't uh, energy uh, inputs and outputs. There are, it's multifaceted. And all of the, you know, to the extent that we have wonderfully energy efficient buildings that are poorly used, uh, that is not a very good equation. So I think one has to really factor intensity of use into the story. And the final uh, um, point I'd like to refute is um, the kind of insinuation against Grimshaw, and this is really to speak in their favor because of all of the many architects who do testify to a belief in post-occupancy evaluation and never get around to doing it, they are one of the practices who's actually commissioned my practice to do independent studies of their buildings in use with a prior commitment to sharing the outputs with their client. I don't think that there are many practices who will put themselves on the line like that. So in their defense, it's not that clear cut. Do you think it should actually be that you could litigate on it, though? Because, I mean, I think the problem is, you know, if people are, if, if, you know, if you design buildings to have certain levels of performance, at what point do you call people to order on it? Or organizations or professions or design teams? At what point are they actually called to order on all of this to actually make sure or ensure that the buildings are performing the way that they were designed to? 
Initially, it used to be a concern of mine that people might use them as a basis for litigation. We used to put that into our terms and conditions for doing post-occupancy evaluation that the output would not be used in any um, action against third parties. But in fact, the entire spirit of it has never been litigious. It's always the people who commission us, and really, I've done this for my entire career, um, the spirit is always uh, learning orientated and I've never picked up a whiff ever of any adverse interest. So I think it's a non-issue. I think it's an excuse. I don't think it's a real impediment at all. Uh, Maria talked about her seven uh, points for decoupling debunked. Uh, Paul, I was just wondering, I mean, a lot of these you were talking about in your own talk. I was just wondering how, whether you would have a kind of, whether you could kind of answer what her claims were about her seven points. I, I think it's just the, it's the whole business of second guessing what's going to happen. Um, the assumptions you make about percentages of economic growth, whether that economic growth is in real terms or money terms. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a look, say, saying that an economy doubles in, in 24 years at 3% growth. Yeah, but what's it doing in real terms? And it's kind of, you know, are we all doomed at the moment? You know, we've got very low growth, but we've got record rates of employment. Um, you know, we've got historically low interest rates, which, of course, you might say encourages to people to build. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Do we want new buildings? Do architects want to sign a suicide note where they all say, we're not going to do any new buildings anymore until we've completely exploited the existing stock. There is no housing shortage. There's just a management crisis. And we can do all that. And then we can save all that embodied carbon that we won't use in creating new buildings. As a skeptic, I say I don't think that's the right way to go. And what's more, I think the city that stops building is dead. Um, and as a society, we will, we will also be dead. And I'm far more interested in uh, people's comments on how they're going to cope uh, with a doubling of global population, with better health, more water. That means more dams. You know, the Attenborough thing, why are the rivers going wrong because of the dams? But why do you need the water? Because the population's doubling. This is serious shit. You know, this is engine, big engineering territory. And I think this is where architecture can have some leverage on this. If I can give one example. If you think about our attitude to water, you get uh, monsoon countries where a kind of engineering ideology, I'm exaggerating for effect, would be to resist, resist, resist. Mother Nature is in a bad mood and it's flood and it's disaster and it's chaos and then three months later it's drought and mother nature's being cruel again and so you saw this in new orleans an engineering ideology very poorly implemented is resist 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 with the levies now an architectural attitude i would suggest might be to do with looking at a rather broader problem, which is embrace, embrace, embrace. In other words, you're not rejecting engineering at all. You're saying, if you're looking at this wider context, and this is what architects are really good at, looking at things in the round and actually synthesizing the apparently really difficult 
How could it be that you could simultaneously resist water, but also embrace it and keep it and store it for future use? And I think that's why you need these professional um, kind of uh, confabulations and mixtures, because the really big issues facing the planet uh, will not be, you know, you know guess what, guys? Britain's going to be okay, roughly. You know what? In 2017, our CO2 emissions went down to levels not seen since the 1890s. We signed a climate change act into law, unlike most countries, uh, in 2008. You know, we're not the worst people on the planet. That doesn't alter the fact that the really big problems are going to come our way. And I'd be quite interested in some kind of adaptation and mitigation strategies and I'd like that those bright architects, those Sterling Prize winners, to do some serious thinking about what we're going to do about flood controls and the implications of global climate change on a country that isn't doing so badly in terms of its own behaviour. I think it's not doing so badly in terms of its own behaviour, but I think you can't use the idea of not the worst. I mean, it really is about whether we can actually trailblaze. The argument would be about whether you trailblaze. Do you make... Do you increase litigation, do you increase regulation in order to kind of get, get the performance that you want out of buildings and out of construction as opposed to just hoping that the industry is going to kind of pull it together through goodwill and, and a little bit of cash? Um, uh, do we have any more questions? Hi there, uh, Rab Bennett from Bennett's Associates. I mean, just on the science thing, which I think is crucial here, and it might be a way of cutting through this, the science is telling us we've got a major problem. That's quite evident. The science will also tell us some of the solutions. And I think where that comes into architecture, of course, is we have this combination of art and science all the time, but we're not nearly objective about enough about it. And I think the science should oblige us to be completely honest and completely objective about the impact we are actually making. So that involves, first of all, measuring your own footprint and the footprint of your company and making sure it's down to as near zero as you can get and then offsetting the rest, that's very clear. The same is true of the buildings. So you gradually carve away at the energy it uses, make sure it's not um, emitting too much carbon, make sure you've got it as close to zero as possible and offsetting that as well. Now that's just objective science. And when you get to the end of it, of course you're faced with a dilemma about where is the energy coming from? Is it renewable? Is it carbon free and all the rest of it? Well, just to give you a bit of hope, of course, coming from further up in the country, in Scotland, for example, there are several days last year and quite a lot more days this year when it's been completely fueled by renewable energy. And it's come from wind, a uh, little bit of solar, and hydro. Now, England is a bit further behind than that. It hasn't got the same opportunities. But the fact is that it's possible, and it wasn't even dreamt about five or 10 years ago. So it is possible. It is possible to get renewables to do more and more of our energy supply and that would make up the difference between the impact we can't avoid and the one that should be carbon zero. So that's about ob objectivity and you have to start with yourself. So we've set ourselves science-based targets in our business. There's about 20 of them. You can find them on the website if you're interested and so on. And if you just keep focusing on carbon, it, it's a proxy for good design. You actually get better architecture out of it. Uh, for example, daylighting. If it's got better daylight in your office building, you don't have to have the lights on. So you lose. it's that kind of thing. It's a kind of virtuous circle. We have to turn to advantage the pursuit of low carbon, and then we can be scientifically objective about how we get there. hope that was positive and practical. <laughs> yeah, zero carbon. I mean, actually, 
you're right. Monitor your own use as a practice and actually see how you can offset the, you know, anything that's left over. I mean, I do think you have to start at that level, really. How does it affect you personally and as a practice? Uh, my name is Oscar Rodriguez. I'm architect for my sins. Um, I went through a, a bit of a journey. So back in 2006 or seven, Ken Shuttleworth didn't give me a job. And um, he said I was too much of a fosterite, and that led to an identity crisis where I really dug into like what really mattered, and it was the energy, the water, the this, the that. And it took eight years of going to parties and having a blank stare and kind of like, we're fucked. You know, it was that, that, that whole emotional process was actually very important. And I'm... Then, you know, I, I qualified and, and I, I was working on Victoria Circle and that was the straw that broke the camel's back, you know, the PLP building that won the carbuncle. Um, and so I decided I can't do this anymore. I've got to do my thing, which was my part two dissertation about finding out how much food could be grown on London's flat roofscape. And, um, and so I did four years of sort of with my, with my, with my company, Architecture and Food, and I was advocating for... Um, rooftop greenhouses and I worked with the uh, housing associations uh, like the Hyde Group and City West Homes and, uh, and, and much to your point uh, I came up with this idea of generative interfacing so what, what was interesting is that because we've got paymasters we can't actually do much with force we've got to do it with seduction so we've got to say things like you know uh, rather than have an, uh, a vacant flat grey shit roofscape with plant on it, why don't you put a greenhouse there that diminishes your liability, increases your rent um, and um, I don't know if we have a Hurricane Katrina could, could help and then you know, I'd, I'd, uh, you know I've written for Urban Design Magazine and I sort of gave my sort of back of envelope calculations yeah you could do a hell of a lot um, just with the idea that uh, you know, you, we, we could resist, we could be forceful, and, and you know, with every movement, you, you had your Martin Luther King and your Malcolm X, right? Martin Luther King said, if you don't d like negotiate with me, you're going to have to deal with him. <laughs> and that's why civil rights actually worked. It's because there's an alternative. Now, ex if Extinction Rebellion are going to be on the more radical side, I applaud them. On the other side has to be the kind of the door openers that sort of say, well, look, there are better ways of doing it. And um, So you're designing green roofs right now? Not green roofs, oh. rooftop greenhouses, so oh, right. the, the farms, essentially. Yeah. It's, it's basically about saying that we have all of these surfaces that degrade under sunlight. They incur maintenance liabilities over time. They, they succumb to temperature variations and water. They crack. You have to fix them. Things like plants actually thrive in those environments. They synthesize, they synergize. So you're doing that, that's what you're concentrating oh on? Oh yeah, but yeah. then here's the thing. So four years of doing that full time, two, innovate U two failed Innovate UK like, applications to, um, with, with City, um, the Hyde Group to look at a feasibility study on it's some rooftop greenhouses in Caledonia Road on a, on a social housing estate. And I've gone back into work and I'm sort of doing it on the side. The, po the point being is I'm now not angry, <laughs> but I'm still pushing it. Oh. But, but having gone through that journey, I've realized that there is actually a process to dealing with the kind of subject that we're talking about, um, that we all need to go through.
So you got depressed, you got angry, got you changed the job, but are you going to get, I mean, would you become was, an activist? So at the moment I'm working on a rooftop greenhouse hydroponics school. Um, but it's a small, it's the, the lowest lying fruit of how you might be able to do this because you don't get the economies of scale given that your, your roofscapes are limited and you have to go, you know, one by one on them. So do we have anybody else in the audience here who's kind of a, an activist or would call themselves an activist in terms of how they work? No, interesting. Well, I, 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 I might say something. Oh, great. I know. Hi. Um, hi. Uh, so um, I, I work with Tom, um, but uh, yeah, I, I hadn't actually expected I was going to say anything. Um, one thing, um, the, the, this was uh, actually on the whether or not it's 11 years. Um, there is a really interesting report um, called What Lies Beneath, and it's not the, uh, the film uh, about sea creatures or whatever, it's, um, it, but it is written by some of the people who were involved in the IPCC report, and they basically talk about consensus making and imagine how many levels of science they had to go through in order to get something that people were kind of reasonably happy to put out on a political basis. So. Um, uh, th th there is there is um, an extinction rebellion um, talk, which is uh, something like uh, heading for extinction and what to do about it. Where they where they they talk about the whole process of of grief instead of hope, um, and uh, basically saying, uh, I, I guess, kind of talking about what, what, you, what you mentioned just now that this this kind of rather than thinking, oh yeah, l let's just be hopeful that it will get sorted out, really just sitting here and, and, and spending some time thinking about how awful this is. Um, and it kind of motivates you in a slightly different way, I think, um, because I'd, I've gone from a position of hope to a position of kind of grief at, at what's happening, and, and it's awful. But um, I now feel um, some of the things doing, uh, uh, personally, whether, whether it's... Um, you know, going going vegan, um, whether it's committing to not flying, um, cycling everywhere, uh, in, you know, zero waste stuff, um, speaking out amongst my friendship group. I think some of those things are quite important, um, just on a personal basis. And then moving up to practice level, it's saying, yeah, we, yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I'm even thinking that this is okay. So maybe this is this is um, my most radical thing. It's like do less architecture. So maybe I might say, well, I'm going to work four days a week instead of five um, because maybe this is going more kind of degrowth, and I'll, I'll just accept some some you know less pay. So maybe like, what what would I do then? Um, you know, it's, it's, I think it's it's that kind of thing. It's saying, do do we really need to have lots of profit? Um, what happens if we just said, okay, we've got just about enough to pay our salaries um, and just, yeah, do less architecture? Um, you know, come back to Paul's point, you know, that with um, population rising, you know, there will probably be a need for more places to, to live or more places to panic. Um, or more places to protest as well. I mean, you know, we, we, we set up this talk about petitions and pro protests. There's a whole history of protests. And, you know, I, I'm just totally depressed tonight listening to you all as speakers because there's nothing I really want to protest about. Really. You know, protests used to be a lot of fun. Now it's protesting pretty much with all like-minded people and stopping off at the nearest Pret, 
halfway along the line or bringing your own water and your own plastic bottles and bringing your own picnic or whatever. It's all kind of just the same route, the same thing going on. I know I'm saying something slightly kind of contrarian here on in, in, in respect to the XR stuff on the bridge. But, you know, it was all done before years ago. Years and years ago, in the 60s through the 70s. And it was nothing really that unusual. There's probably a lot of fun. And there's probably a lot of really interesting discussions and interesting people there. But I think this talk for me was to sort of see if there was what, if there was people still around who really did want to get involved in an energized prote protest and an energized petition on something that yeah, frankly is quite scary and it is a bit science fiction and it is a bit depressing, but you know, protests are a bit boring. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, no, but they don't exactly kind of, I mean, you can, get, I mean, the poll tax riots back kind of like basically destabilized the whole policy for, yeah. so I mean, there is, you know, I do think that there is a place for, for a demonstration to actually move things forward. I mean, that did make changes. I was just going to ask Steve whether you went to the, the any of the Extinction Rebellion protests. They're just they're just. N but it's just all I say is that uh, I appreciate I'm giving a an, you know maybe it comes across as a negative outlook, but so they've been some of the most awesome uh, atmospheres. And I uh, just just go 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 along to one and see what you think. All right. Um, so I just wanted to respond very directly to this theme of population, which has come up several times. There was a study, a very rigorous academic study by the economist Thomas Piketty, which found that 50% of global carbon emissions are caused by the richest 10% globally. At the same time, the poorest 10% are responsible for less than uh, for less than Sorry, the poorest half of the globe are responsible for less than 10% um, of global emissions. So, you know, um, there's another, another study which shows that if you brought the, the, um, the carbon emissions of the ultra-rich down to that of an average European, you would instantly knock a third off of global carbon emissions. And we'd be... We'd, no, but this is... It's, it's important to understand this issue of population is a red herring. And, you know, it's important. Um, the problem is not gross population. The, the problem is the lifestyles of the ultra-rich. You know, some people say we can't afford the rich. I would say we definitely can't afford the impacts of their lifestyles. So, you know, I don't know what that means for us as architects. But, you know, a lot of our clients are quite rich, I guess. So... Should we talk about what we can do as architects then? Would you like to? Okay, fine. Build everything in timber. Yeah. <laughs> it's easy. I'm surprised to be in a room of, of architects who care about the environment that would say post-occupancy is boring. Post-occupancy gives us data through which we can make good arguments. Like hands up who's an activist well two people put their hand up that leaves lobbying as probably the, the the sort of mechanism by which we can make an impact right so I'm an architect I'm passionate about 
better design and saving the environment. Well, how can I prove that? Well, through post-occupancy through post-occupancy evaluation, because one of the metrics that is studied is build a, building user satisfaction. So if you can say, well, look, I've studied this building. It's not just like as boring as energy in, energy out. You study how happy people are in the buildings. And if you're going to go to, like, sorry, I run a practice, and most of my clients are developers, and it, uh, you can reasonably ask them to do anything as long as you can prove that it, it has a return on that investment, and that is not necessarily financial. You know? and what, so if you can say, well, look, 95% of the people in your building are going to love it, <laughs> that's a legitimate ROI that you're going to study through post-occupancy. And also you can say, well, look, over 20 years, if you save 5% of carbon a year, your energy bills are going to pay for the building. And that's another good argument. So you've got to be smart about the way you are advocating for design to make any impact. I do not have the ability to change whether the richest 10% of the world are rich or not. But you know, the developers that I work with, if I can advocate for it being a good idea to design something better with proof that it works, then I think that's the only real tool that I have in my arsenal. Thanks. Um. I just wanted to come back to the words protest or activism and, and actually how they kind of have negative connotations in the wider world. I have this debate with my business partner all the time who was around in the riots of the 80s. And yeah, you go on a march, you feel great, you have your pret sandwiches, exactly what you're saying. It isn't depicted that way, the way you're all enjoying it and feeling quite powerful going down the mile. When you get out into the provinces, it's look at those bunch of lefty hippies, unemployed, waste of space, etc. You know, the people are revolting, read that which way ever you want. The difference with Extinction Rebellion, and I think there's something exciting as urban practitioners, is it affected change. It physically changed the way we experienced the city. You obviously weren't there. Yeah, there were a lot of self-righteous people talking about whatever, but it physically changed the city. It cut cars down, it shifted the hierarchy. I don't understand the difference between what they were doing on last Sunday when they close it and have their hoity-toity shopping day on Regent Street. The Crown Estate shut it. So what's the difference between Extinction Rebellion shutting it? You're still creating that pedestrian feel. Air quality was improved, and I think it's those changes that start to create these conversations whether you like the way the Extinction Rebellion did it, that's by the by. So far, so many architects I know have been actively involved, but they haven't been able to say to their clients, I was actively involved, because fear they'll lose work. But we all live in the world, so climate change is going to affect every single one of us, whether you believe it or not. It will, it will change, whether it's 12 years or 13 or 15, whatever. That's, by, again, by the by. But we're all going to be affected, and so let's start acting and using the knowledge we have. We're change makers. Maybe that's different to the word activist. Activist is alienating. It's strong and passionate, but I think it's been branded wrong. Do you understand that argument, Julia? Just have. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree with that. I mean, I was, um, you know, Waterloo Bridge. It was a much better garden bridge when, you know, and for a lot less money <laughs> than, uh, than the one that was proposed by, um, the, by Boris, actually. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, but I think we, you know, we do need to act like this is an emergency because, I mean, even if you don't believe that it is, what if it is, you know? <laughs> You know. I mean, to be clear, I'm not a climate, 
climate change denier. I'm very distrustful about precise years when the uh, end of the world is nigh. That's what I'm saying. And I've always, ever since I heard a talk by the chief of the Met Office back in the 1990s about rising temperatures, I thought, hey, you know, we should be working on a precautionary principle. Yes. I want to pick up this thing about um, um, uh, population because the inexorable uh, growth in carbon emissions associated with um, popula population growth. Unfortunately, you can't have environmentalism in one country. It doesn't matter what we do in the UK. Uh, if things are happening elsewhere in the world over which we have no control whatsoever, uh, this is a kind of idealist position that, oh well, everything will be wonderful provided we're doing the right thing on our own patch. Well, it won't because we will suffer the effects of what's happening globally it's coming our way. So I would like to see s some strategy about this. And I completely agree with Rab Bennett's point and also Maria's point, which is if you take a strategic view that you actually set your regulatory systems up so that actually you push in certain directions and you have to actually, by law, under regulation, actually make your buildings to, to designed to a certain carbon efficiency, that will actually start pushing to greater use of timber. I remember years ago, you know, we, we had a very informal conversation at CABE with people at the Treasury saying from a strategic point of view, the UK should be pushing timber production because actually using homegrown timber uh, to do in buildings is virtuous all the way around, you know, economically, uh, and uh, environmentally. But I do think we have to recognize that the changes that are coming, the coastal erosion that's wiping out villages up and down the east coast, needs to be addressed as well as doing those other things in relation to the new buildings and the retrofit we're doing. Um, and this notion that, oh, well, none of that matters, you know, because it's the per capita which counts. It is not the per capita that counts. It's the total gross amount of carbon that counts. It doesn't matter what the per capita is. It's the gross amount that makes the changes. So I, I just think we've got to, that's a precautionary principle as well, which you actually, for example, get serious about putting another Thames barrier in. Hi. Um, yeah, the thought of we can't do as much as the UK would have been nice if that was going around in the time that the industrial revolution started exactly in this country as well. So I think in, term, in sense of power, there is actually a lot you can do and you can spread also globally. Um, I am very pessimistic about the future of the human species. I find it heartbreaking to see how many species species are disappearing every 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 day. Um, however, I'm an architect. I think generally we all are optimists. Otherwise, we would have stopped quite quickly um, pursuing this career. Um, and when it was this hot last week, Thursday, I was cycling home after a nice barbecue, uh, sweating on my bike. I love cycling. I'm from Holland. Um, going past Victoria Park and the temperature dropped a couple of degrees and I thought, oh, it's nice here. 
And actually, it's also nice here during the day. People generally love trees. It's good for us. Um, so I think the way that we can fight climate change, or maybe help a little bit, is also good for people. Maybe we need to share more things. Maybe that will result in less loneliness. Maybe actually some things that we can do in this situation means that we can sort of get home. Maybe it's good for people. That actually sounded quite like quite a kind of guard, a note of guarded optimism, to be honest. It's one of the few that we've had in this whole uh, this whole evening. Um, I think I've got to draw this to a close, but I would like to thank very much Julia, uh, Paul, Tom, and Maria for uh, their expert opinions. It was great talking to you. Uh, I'd like to thank the audience as well. Thank you for coming along. It's been great having your input. Um, I don't quite know in terms of the rounding up. I mean. Yes, there seems to be, uh, you know, basic things. Change your own personal behaviour. Change, you know, be responsible for your own carbon footprint. With that zero carbon, you can take that forward, as Rab was saying, is to monitoring your own company's uh, carbon footprint as a practice. Do less architecture. That's an interesting one. Um, have less babies from Paul. And build a robust argument for your clients. Uh, <laughs> Build a robust argument for your clients for carbon mitigation in construction and use. Uh, and I suppose if you want to protest, get out there and protest is what I'd say. I mean, you know, if you, you know, piss will get off the pot really in terms of that. What I took away and what really struck me about that uh, Oliver Elias and uh, carbon, you know, kind of iceberg um, exercise that he did, the ice watch, was that uh, he had a scientist who was doing the artwork with who told, told me that 10,000 tons of the Arctic shelf was dropping off the actual shelf every second. Uh, and I do think that with figures like that, we really do need to start thinking how the profession can start kind of pushing forward. I do think it's going to be litigation. I do think it's going to be litigation related or, or, or actually forcing people to meet the criteria that they design their buildings to in terms of... Um, post-occupancy uh, evaluation and carbon, uh, its actual carbon footprint in construction. Um, I do have hope. I don't think we can be depressed, but uh, it is fairly depressing, actually. I don't see why I even said that. It's pretty <laughs> bloody depressing. Um, uh, but if you can't, yeah, I'd suggest you just fill your glasses, really, while we can enjoy the hot weather. And uh, have a lovely summer, everybody. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture. <laughs>